Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. How we live today, how we take care of life today, has a connection to the outcome of what's yet to come. We are traversing a terrain which we as a species and as a planet overall have not seen before. We are facing an ecological crisis that has the capacity to tremendously alter life on Earth. Today, we have not only an ecological crisis, we also have a kind of story crisis. That is to say, there's something very wrong about the way that we understand who we are and our relationship with the Earth. We're at the point in time now where we need to take radical leaps in order to be able to continue to live on this planet. We have to think about it in a much broader, grander fashion. The question is not do we need a new story, but do we need a new way of telling a story? We've got to take into account these values that have sustained societies for millennia and create a planetary civilization for future generations. Central to that is that the Earth is seen as a living system, a living being, where everything we are and can ever be is dependent upon this great, verdant 
fertile, sensitive, intricately interwoven web of life. The only viable way to live on this earth is to create the conditions that are conducive to life. Anything else we do besides that harms ourselves because it is ourselves. You are an integral part of a system that is functioning, whether we want to belong or not. We belong to the earth. We are part of an unfolding evolutionary process that includes all beings and is a hundred billion galaxies wide. Regarding the trailer that you just saw, I've been asked to mention that the full film, and it's going to be a feature-length film, unlike the uh, overview, which some of you might have seen yesterday, that was a short one, the continuum is going to be a, probably a hundred or two-hour um, full film, which sounds just wonderful, and I think you'll see pretty quickly why that works so well as an introduction to the sort of thing that I'd like to talk about. I think it's pretty clear to anyone who's paying attention that we live in a time of great crisis. Not only ecological crisis, although that's maybe the most obvious, but also economic crisis. Um, for most people, the Great Recession is far from over. And also political crisis. I mean, I think the kind of stalemate we're seeing in Congress is reflecting a deeping kind of fragmentation or division in our sort of national consciousness. But that's not what I want to talk about here. You can add your own crisis to the mix. I would want to talk about what I think is another crisis that is much less obvious, but in a way might be even more important in the sense that it underlies these other crises. I mean a story crisis. And by story, I mean our basic understanding of what the world is about, who we are, and how it is that we fit together. The basic problem is that we are now living a dysfunctional story, a story that isn't working very well, a story that actually doesn't correspond to the way the world actually is. And the real problem here, of course, is that we don't know it's a story. We tend to see through the story. We, send, we tend to think it's reality. And so we're not aware that there's other ways of understanding the world. And it may well be that we need to come to a new story if we're actually going to be able to resolve these other crises, the ecological, the economic, and political. And so that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the new story, which a number of different people have been talking about. I don't know whether, or writing about, thinking about. Um, 
If you're not familiar with it and you want to pursue it, I'd suggest for a start um, a book by uh, Thomas Berry and Brian Swim, The Universe Story. I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, but it's a great place to start. Um, what doesn't seem to have been noticed so far is that although there are a number of slightly different versions, no one seems to have put it together with Buddhism. In fact, I think the fundamental teachings of Buddhism can actually help us appreciate and understand this story much more deeply, depending, of course, on how it is that we understand Buddhism, because I think the new story also challenges some of the, what you might call the Iron Age mythologies of traditional Buddhism, mythologies, aspects that we really need to interrogate and, and rethink today. So that's what I propose to do. My story begins with Charles Darwin. When he published The Origin of Species, he basically refuted the last remaining proof for God's existence, the argument from design, the idea that some kind of supreme consciousness or intelligence was necessary to design these incredibly complex organisms that we and so many other animals are. So we can understand from that viewpoint, God not disappeared necessarily, but he certainly sort of tended to sort of disappear up into the clouds. And that's created a real problem because traditionally God has been the source of meaning, value, and goodness for us. So when God disappeared, there was a kind of a God-like hole that was left. Hmm? A God-like hole in a desacralized world that had lost the source of its meaning. We no longer had a binding moral code to determine how it is that we should live together. So the new secular universe that we've inherited from that, ruled by impersonal physical laws, is basically indifferent to us in our fate. And we have no role to play in it. We're basically accidents of the evolutionary process, random genetic modifications. And that is a lot of the problem, because unlike Virtually every pre-modern culture where human beings, human society, had a really important role to play in keeping the cosmos working. The universe isn't different to us. We're kind of an accident. And there's a lot of dukkha, a lot of collective dukkha built into that as far as how we understand what we're supposed to do, how it is that we're going to while away our time on this earth. In other words, if God was originally providing the old understanding of meaning and value and goodness, where are we going to get that? Because we still need it, right? We still need some answers to those questions. Where are we going to derive them? Well, pretty quickly after Darwin published his book, um, his contemporary, Herbert Spencer, came out with what has become known as social Darwinism. And he basically took tried to apply what Darwin had discovered, decided about the way that the natural world works, the way that evolution works, competition, and so forth. And he said, we can apply that to society. Society is the same kind of organism. He was the one who coined the term survival of the fittest and applied it to human society so that civilization came to be understood as another jungle environment where if you don't crawl over the next guy on your way to the top, he's going to crawl over you. 
The value and meaning of life were largely understood in terms of survival and maybe not so much reproductive, but financial success now. The basic unit of society is the individual. Conventional morality is just social conditioning. And basically, life is all about what you can get and what you can get away with until you die. You're either a winner or a loser, and you don't want to be a loser. Winners deserve what they get. Losers deserve what they get. I think you can see the attraction of this to a certain number of people, especially those who are more successful, right? Most of us have know very little. Maybe we haven't even heard the word Herbert Spencer. But he was actually the most influential, the most popular philosopher or intellectual, actually, public intellectual, that the United States has ever known. You literally can hardly overemphasize his impact on the late 19th century. And surprise, surprise, some of the people most influenced by him were the industrial tycoons, or as we sometimes like to say, the robber barons. People like uh, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller. Carnegie, for example, in his autobiography, confessed how troubled he was by the collapse of Christian theology. And then he read Darwin and Herbert Spencer and said, quote, I remember that light came as a flood and all was clear. Not only had I got rid of theology and the supernatural, I had found the truth of evolution. Well, I think we can understand how, why this was so attractive, because basically this also really helped to rationalize the kind of ruthless business practices that he engaged in, right? And an even better example, John D. Rockefeller described his ways of doing business as, again, survival of the fittest. And he actually gave a Sunday school sermon in which he compared the economic process to growing roses, which I guess he liked to do. And he said, in order for this one particular blossom to grow up and be biggest, most effulgent, most uh, scentful, you have to snip off all the other buds around it. I'm not sure who he meant by the other little buds, whether that's his competitors or his employees. But I'm pretty sure I can guess who he understood to be the big Effulgent rose, right? right? Now, you may wonder, why am I talking so much about social Darwinism, something that no one ever talks about, even if they know about it today? The truth is, of course, if you're a social Darwinist, it's not necessarily wise to admit that you're a social Darwinist. Maybe you'll be more successful if you don't. But it's also true that social Darwinism is only one prime example of something that has a number of different reincarnations and continues to be very important in our society today. One really good example being the philosophy of uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, Gore Vidal summarized her objectivism in a couple short phrases. What did he say? Altruism is the root of all evil. Self-interest is the only good. The point is, of course, Ayn Rand has become enormously influential among many libertarians and new conservatives. For example, Paul Rand, the vice presidential candidate for the Republicans in the last election, uh, he's no relation to Ayn Rand, but he has actually said he was inspired to run for public office by her writings. And I think an even better example is Paul Greenspan, who, as head of the Fed, the Federal Reserve, for many years, 
was really the government's most important spokesman or supervisor over the economic process, right? Well, he was not only a student and a friend of Ayn Rand, but he said he reads Atlas Shrugged every year. Well, I don't know if you've tried. I've tried. I couldn't get through it once, so more power to him. <laughs> but what does this say about the ideology, the worldview, the understanding of reality that's functioning at the top? From a Buddhist perspective, I think we can see pretty clearly that social Darwinism, in any of its incarnations, tends to rationalize some rather unsavory motivations, such as the three poisons that Buddhism traditionally focuses on as, as the roots of evil. Huh? Greed, aggression, and especially the delusion of separation, the delusion that I'm separate from you, and therefore I can and for a social Darwinist, I should pursue my own well-being indifferent to or even at the cost of your well-being. This is something I'm going to constantly come back to because I think this is really at the heart of the worldview that has become so problematical today. I mean, many sociologists have pointed out that social Darwinism of Spencer's understanding, the idea that society is a sort of Darwinist jungle, that just doesn't work. I mean, the whole point of society is that we, can know, we know that if we don't like the way it's structured, we can restructure it to make it more socially just, which we've done in a number of ways. But in one very important way, um, social Darwinism, in, in whatever form, um, in a way it doesn't matter whether it's objectively true or not. The point is, if you have a lot of powerful, influential people who believe in social Darwinism and they act according to social Darwinism, what happens? In a way, our society is reconstructed and it becomes a kind of social Darwinist jungle. And of course, the interesting question is, is that the kind of society that we live in today? How much has that happened? Remember Gordon Gecko in um, Wall Street? Greed is good. Now, of course, Social Darwinism is not the beginning of greed or anything like that. But what is, what is a matter of great concern is how much this helps to rationalize this rather unsavory motivation from a Buddhist standpoint, how much it actually ends up justifying it. And I really wonder if how much we can understand our society now, what's happening at the top levels of you know, economics, at the top levels of the political system, and really... I, are they two systems, or aren't they really sort of two parts of the same system these days? Can we understand what's going on here, and even internationally, the kind of social Darwinist competition among nations? Can we understand this unless we see something like this ideology functioning? If this is true, if this is problematical, what's the solution? Should we simply exchange, give up, something like social Darwinist understanding, whatever form that may take, for a traditional Buddhist worldview, a traditional Buddhist story. Well, Buddhism certainly has a lot to offer, as I'm going to be going into, but we also need to recognize that Buddhism originated in Iron Age India, and inevitably it tends to share in the kind of mythologies that were very popular at that time. Uh, I mean, for example, um, 
If you read the Pali Canon, the earliest Buddhist text that we have, there are all kinds of stories about disincarnate spirits and gods, uh, some of whom the Buddha talks to. For example, there's one story where a tree spirit complains to the Buddha that its tree has been cut down. Um, there's another story where the Buddha hovers in midair over a river in order to stop two armies from fighting each other. And another one where after a debate with a non-Buddhist, he suddenly rises up into the air and sort of zooms off. Actually, my favorite example is supposedly the way the Abhidharma, the third part of the Tripitaka, the Pali Canon, originated. Supposedly, the Buddha taught it. He ascended up into Tushita heaven and taught it to his mother there, which I find, well, I mean, I, I know a lot of professional philosophers and Buddhologists who find the Abhidharma rather difficult, so I'm just sort of curious what his mother made of it, right? So I think we can see pretty clearly the solution isn't simply taking the Buddhist worldview, the Buddhist paradigm, and exchanging that, but rather what we really need now is a conversation between the best of the Western tradition, and particularly it has to take into account science. Any, any new story, I think, really has to start with what we've discovered, and particularly it's discovered about things like cosmology and evolution. And then we need to bring that into conversation with the most important Buddhist teachings about the causes of suffering, about awakening, about impermanence, insubstantiality, and emptiness, and, and all that sort of thing. So that's what I propose to do. It, it's interesting, isn't it, that so many religions have a real problem with evolution um, because it really sort of threatens their uh, origin stories, their creation stories. But actually, Buddhism with this emphasis on impermanence and so forth, really doesn't have a problem. And that's why I think we can see, we will see how well the basic Buddhist perspective fits into this new story that I now want to present a little bit. Okay, so far, does this make sense? This is all kind of setting it up. Now going into the heart of this new story. Let me just say a little bit about that, and then I'll bring in the Buddhist perspective on it. Brian Swim, the cosmologist, has said that the most important scientific discovery ever made is that if you leave hydrogen gas alone for 14 billion years, plus or minus a few hundred million years, <laughs> quote, it turns into rose bushes, giraffes, and humans. Interesting. Is that also perhaps a very important spiritual story? Because the real question here, isn't it, is if hydrogen gas does that, what does that say about the true nature of hydrogen gas? There's an old Native American story or, what is it, tale, that talks about three great miracles. The first miracle is that anything exists. And if you think about it, that's a pretty big miracle. Right? The second miracle is that living things exist. And the third miracle is that living things exist that know they exist. What I find amazing is how well this maps or parallels with the three stages of the evolutionary process. 
I mean, usually we distinguish cosmology from biological evolution from cultural evolution. But what if we look at them together, one sort of sweep, and ask, what's going on here, right? So we start out with the Big Bang, or as some people call it, the Great Flaring Forth, right? Originally, what do you have? Well, you have mostly hydrogen, a little bit of helium, lithium, and how over millions and millions of years, slowly, those enormous clouds condense into stars, and in the cores of stars, the hydrogen is fused to make the heavier elements. Heavier elements like uh, carbon, oxygen, uh, silicon, all the other ones I can't remember right now that are so important for life. And then later, the stars and the, um, the superstars, the large stars, the supernovas, they explode and they scatter these higher elements, which are necessary for life. And then you get secondary solar systems like ours, where, again, there's a secondary co uh, coalescing, and you get a planet that therefore has the possibility, it has the elements that it needs in order for carbon-based life to evolve. And that's the second stage. So you get uh, sort of the arising of organisms that are able to reproduce themselves and also to evolve until you finally get to primates and humans, and that's the third stage of evolution, cultural evolution, which is necessary in order to create higher forms higher beings such as the Buddha or Einstein or Gandhi, somebody like that. So here's the question. Here's the new story question. What's really going on here? And again, keeping those three together, not three separate things that we normally study them as, but looking at the whole suite. What's going on? Well, traditionally, of course, there's two big answers. I mean, theists, people who believe in God, they think that there's some outside intelligence if they believe in evolution at all, they believe in sort of some external consciousness that's directing it. At the same time, the received materialist paradigm understands it as basically, well, especially in the case of biological evolution, it's simply a result of random chance, haphazard genetic mutations that somehow become more, um, more suitable for uh, that particular environment leading to greater reproductive success. But basically, it's chance. It's random. There's no meaning to it. I find it very interesting how this choice between God and matter reproduces this troublesome duality in the Western tradition that we've had for so long, the duality between mind and matter, right? It's got to be either mind or matter. If it's mind, well, it's the mind of God. If it's matter, matter evolves to a certain complexity, and then it becomes somehow self-conscious, aware. Other cultures don't have this duality in quite the same way. If you think about something like a chi or ki in China, or prana in India, they don't seem caught up in it. And so the question is, is there a third alternative? Is there another way of understanding what's going on here? According to the evolutionary biologist, very eminent, Theodore Dobzhansky, evolution is neither random nor determined, but, wait for it, creative. And another pretty distinguished biologist, Elizabeth Satoris, said something very similar. She said, evolution is an intelligent improvisational dance. Hmm? What makes the dance intelligent is not that there's a dancing master outside it who 
decides the steps and rehearses and all that. Rather, but the dance itself evolves as the participants, the dancers, find new moves. So there's a kind of improvisational quality that expresses a different kind of an intelligence, an intelligence that's not imposed from outside, but as built into the process itself. In other words, the cosmos self-organizes. And that's really maybe the most important term. This is the new conception that the, that the cosmos doesn't need something outside it, and it's not simply mechanical. You know, the old received materialistic reductionistic paradigm is that, you know, again, there's simply this, that there's a bunch of laws that organize things kind of like a machine. And maybe that's an important term to look at for a minute. The, the, the old paradigm that really the universe is like a machine. Actually, if you look at it closely, that metaphor doesn't really work very well. Let me, uh, let's do a little thought experiment quickly. If I can ask you, please close your eyes just for a second and think of a machine, any machine. Now, most of us are geeks, so it's probably a computer, right? But whatever machine it was, I'm pretty sure that in addition to the machine, there was somebody outside the machine, something, some creator that designed the machine, built it, and maintains it. In other words, the basic concept, the basic metaphor of a machine is built around the idea that there is something outside the machine, which worked back in the old days when that metaphor was first evolving. But in fact, well, because in those days, everyone knew it was God. God was the one who created the universe as a kind of machine and also created the laws whereby it works. But think of it this way. If, if you have a machine that is constantly transforming, evolving, creating more complicated parts out of itself, it's not a machine. That metaphor doesn't work. In fact, a much better metaphor would be to call it an organism. What happens if we look upon the universe, the cosmos, as an organism? In other words, does that mean that the cosmos is alive? So instead of reducing biology to kind of physics, a physicalistic, mechanistic metaphor, paradigm, what if we turn the other way around and we understand as our basic paradigm this organic, biological one? According to the philosopher Irvin Laszlo, this new emerging paradigm also happens to be the traditional pre-modern paradigm. He says, quote, At the cutting edge of contemporary science, a remarkable insight is surfacing. The universe, with all things in it, is a quasi-living, coherent whole. All things are connected, and a cosmos that's connected, coherent, and whole recalls an ancient notion present in the every other pre-modern tradition. It's an enchanted cosmos. We are part of each other and of nature. We are a conscious part of the world, and wait for it, a being through which the cosmos comes to know itself. We are at home in the universe. If we are, in fact, a being through which the cosmos comes to know itself, then the cosmos is something more than our home. We're an integral part of it in a more profound way, we could understand ourselves as a kind of organ then, 
of the cosmos, which raises the question, organs in our body, they have functions. What is our function? I mean, are we starting to see the possibilities here that we're not just accidents of the evolutionary process, but we actually might have a role to play? The fascinating implication of this new paradigm, then, is that we can understand evolution in the broadest sense as the creative groping of a self-organized cosmos, self-organizing cosmos, that is becoming more self-aware and perhaps wants to become more self-aware. In the universe story, this book by Barry and Swim, they make this point much more poetically than I can. Quote, The mind that searches for contact with the Milky Way is the very mind of the Milky Way galaxy in search of its own inner depths. In other words, maybe if you go out late at night, you look up at the stars, wonder, you know, what it's all about. Well, us, these beings that have been created, that are looking up at the Milky Way, we are in fact products of the Milky Way. It's the Milky Way looking up at itself and wondering what it's all about. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.